welcome again. I'm so thankful that we get to continue in our summer sermon series in the book of Colossians. Having just read that very practical passage, I want to pause for just a moment. And as Mike mentioned, I want to tell you some things that are going on in the life of our church in general and our campus in particular. Uh, we are here in the middle of July. We've been saying this for a few weeks now, but on August 21st, our plan, our prayer, all of our uh, logistical maneuverings have been that we will go back to two worship services for this campus at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m., and that will mean uh, age-specific ministries at both of those worship hours, and so we're going to require and need a whole lot of people to staff those different positions. Now, there has been, generally speaking, wide uh, enthusiasm about that. There have been a couple people, m mostly me, who are not excited about going to two services because that means i got to do this twice. Or the worship team, they've got to do this twice. And we pay them the exact same if we do seven services. Nothing! So... I'm very, very excited about what the Lord's going to do as we move into that way. But what we're trying to do, and I just want to be as, as direct as I possibly can, is increase the impact of the gospel from the center of the city. We have the answer, all right? What this world needs is the gospel. And so what we're trying to do is create open seats at optimal times. And so We've been talking about this in sort of hushed whispers from time to time for the last several months, but many of you are aware that we are about to embark upon what we're calling an investment campaign. Our church, Bethel, has not been through an investment campaign in about eight years, and it's time for us to explore expansion. Some of you know that we have some plans to expand the physical plant of this particular campus uh, dramatically. And so what Mike was mentioning this morning in his welcome and greeting was that immediately after church, we're going to talk about that. Our plan is to have a full discussion about that on Sunday, July 31st. Sunday, July 31st, two weeks from today, we're going to have everybody on the second floor have lunch and talk about it. But then it occurred to us, man, this is such a big thing. This is such an important thing. There might be some people, because it's the end of July before school activities get started, there might be some people who can't make July 31st. So we're going to go ahead and do it today as well. So I want you to plan, either today, join us on the second floor right after church. We'll have lunch, sandwiches, um, have some discussion, some dialogue, some vision casting of what this is all about. Have an opportunity for questions and maybe even some answers. We'll see. But if you can't make it today, I really hope you will plan and uh, pray about joining us on Sunday, July 31st. But right after church today... On the second floor, we'll need as many people as we can to help strike the chairs that are down there. We'll roll out tables, we'll have lunch served, and we'll talk through what we believe God is leading us to do at this church in general again, and specifically at this campus. Now then, I want us to pray together, and I want us to ready our hearts, our minds, even our bodies for the unpacking of God's Word, because it's about as practical and rubber on road as it gets. So please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege of coming together as your people, indwelled by your spirit because of the finished work of Jesus. And so now, would you illumine your word? Would you comfort us? Would you convict us? Would you change us? We thank you for this passage, Father. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, as an impressionable youngster running around, all 88 pounds of bright, flaming red hair, 
and Argyle sweater vests and tough skin jeans and hunt club shirts from J.C. Penney's. There was one name. There was one name that captivated the imagination that sort of made my heart sore. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, it's Jesus. No, it wasn't. I wasn't born saved like some of you, okay? I know that he's the name above all names, and I even knew it back then. But practically speaking, there was one name that just sort of made my, my mind just, just venture. That name, of course, was Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> Mr. Miyagi, for those of you of a certain age, there he is. He held all of the secrets. This is the guy, this ancient Japanese man, this sensei in Southern California, he could teach an 88-pound weakling how to beat up the bleached blonde bully that was always harassing me. And then I watched the movie. And I found out that there was no actual secret. Mr. Miyagi was a shyster. Mr. Miyagi said, oh, you want to know how to defend yourself and how to be Captain Awesome? Yeah, well, go out and paint the fence. Paint up, paint down. Paint up, paint down. About 47,000 linear feet of fence you got to paint. And then he said, oh, but when you're done with that, I want you to wax all these cars. Wax on, wax off. If you happen to be Gen X, wax on, wax off comes out in your dreams. Like, you know this expression. Wax on, wax off. What was Mr. Miyagi doing? Well, he was building muscle memory in the mundane. Now, Daniel-san didn't like that a whole lot. And the reality is, a lot of us kind of feel the same way about our spiritual walk. We come to faith, we grow up, we begin to live lives in our everyday walking around world, and we are sort of still looking for that podcast. We're sort of still looking for that book or that brochure or that pamphlet or that whatever it might be that'll just give us uh, a quick boost of spiritual growth and maturity. The reality is there's never been such a thing for Christians. The apostle Paul is sitting in prison in Rome during his first Roman imprisonment, and he gets a report from a pastor named Epaphras, now known as Pappy. Thank you, Tom Ramey. And he hears about the struggles that they're going through. And the amazing thing is the people of Colossae were struggling with the exact same thing that the people of East Texas in the 21st century are struggling with. They're going, really? Is this all there is? You gave me the gospel, I believed it, I received it, and life is pretty hard. And oftentimes it's dull, it's doldrum, it's blue. Candidly, it's depressing and discouraging. What am I supposed to do with this? Mr. Miyagi says, paint up, paint down, wax on, wax off. The Apostle Paul, we just found out archaeologically, Paul's last name is Miyagi. The Apostle Paul says... Serve one, encourage one. Serve one, encourage one. Serve one, encourage one. And you build muscle memory. And you build soul memory in those quiet, mundane places so that when those opportunities are brought across your path by the Spirit of the living God, you wax on, you wax off, you paint up, you paint down. You serve one, you encourage one. And so that's our big idea for the morning from this passage as we come to the end of chapter 3. It's very simply, serve where you are. Serve where you are. Not this massive, exciting, glitzy mission. Serve where you are. I want to talk about this here for just a moment, theoretically here. As we're in the book of Colossians, it's important to have some context. Paul doesn't just drop this passage 
in a vacuum. Now, that's important for me to say that because this passage and its sister text in Ephesians chapter 5 have been ripped out and used to bludgeon and batter Christianity and our faith because it seems to be rather staccato, meaning quick, rapid bursts of things that we don't particularly like in our culture and context. But the book of Colossians is all about the supremacy of Christ. The book of Colossians is not written to tell us how to organize a society or a culture necessarily. It is about the preeminence, the supremacy of Christ. And then very practically speaking, it is confronting and correcting conflict with the kingship of Christ. There's a lot of things going on in our day and age. And people have wondered, what about this? What about that? What about that issue? What about those issues? Right. Jesus is king. And he happens to be a death-proof king. And he happens to have some very specific and particular ideas of how we are to live our lives. That settles most disputes, quite candidly. Not a voting record, not an economic package, not an educational background. It is the kingship of Christ that corrects conflicts. Because Jesus wants us to hear and receive and believe the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Now you're hearing this and you're going, yeah, I've already heard that before. Good, because repetition is the mother of learning. That's why Paul writes Colossians and Ephesians. They say almost the same thing because preachers like to repeat themselves. Why? Because we're not very creative. And because there are some truths that just need to get down deep into our souls. Paul says, serve where you are. Now, Ashton's already read our passage, and it opens up rather abruptly. Wives, submit. And right there's a record scratch. And in 2022, you can't say that. Well, I didn't say it. Now, listen, I get it. This is one of those texts that people have attacked and have said it's out of date. It's no longer relevant. It's no longer appropriate. It's not okay. I understand that. I, I, I get it. But we have to understand, again, this text comes in a context. Last week, we ended with verse 17, and where Paul says, Do everything, thought, word, and deed, in the name of Jesus, with thanksgiving. Everything you do is to be from a posture, from a stance, from a perspective of gratitude, of gratefulness, of thanksgiving. Next command, wives, submit. Now, I get it. We hear passages like what was just read, and we think, okay, I get it. Yada, yada, yada. I get it, I get it, I get it. Be a better person. Sure, sure, sure. But we just kind of want to be already a better person. Already, like, can't I just like, why can't God just knock down the walls of Jericho of my sinful life? Because he doesn't operate that way. If you'll notice in the conquest in the book of Joshua, he knocks down the walls once. Every other time, they have to go in there and do the work that God called them to do. That's how he has us in this world. In those ancient churches 2,000 years ago, the home was the center of cultural, societal life. Everything revolved around the home. And so Paul and Peter write these things called household codes, not trying to obliterate the Greek and Roman Empire. Absolutely not. They're saying these are the guidelines for how you live godly full lives. Why? Because inspired by the Spirit, Paul and Peter understood that we have a tendency to live our lives out there a certain way. But when we get behind the doors and windows of our homes, we tend to give those people we love most our leftovers. 
Now, isn't that interesting? You've heard the adage, we always hurt the ones we love. Why? Because down deep in our depravity, we sort of just assume that we can get away with it. They'll, they have to forgive us because they're married to us, or they're my children, or they're my parents. We give one another our leftovers, and Paul wants us to know, the Bible wants us to know, the Spirit wants us to know, giving those we love most our leftovers is not the gospel. And fundamentally, it is a failure to believe the gospel. I would honestly, candidly, transparently, rather serve some of you and have other people in the church see it and go, gosh, our pastor, isn't he just a servant heart? And my wife's going, what? No! It's hard to serve at home where you are. Richard Foster is one of my favorite authors. He says, our flesh whines against service, but it screams against hidden service. Hmm. If I'm going to serve somebody, I better get noticed and recognized for it. No, no, no. Paul says we are hidden with Christ in God. Nobody out there really sees what we're like at home, just the ones that we love. And so it doesn't often behave, uh, motivate us to behave decently when we're at home. We feel like our families just sort of have to tolerate us. Robert Lewis is a pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. And he has this great expression. He says it over and over again. It's just one of the refrains of his ministry. And he says it this way. The first evidence of a man's depravity is his impulse to neglect his domestic responsibilities. His impulse, not whether he does or not, but that's one of the first evidences of our depravity is our impulse to neglect domestic responsibilities. I'm above that. I'm better than that. Someone else should take care of that for me. But instead, the Apostle Paul, the Spirit of God in Colossians says, serve where you are. The Bible admonishes us in each of our roles at home to submit. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. So it's important to understand that there's a context for this. Just like in Ephesians 5, the book of Colossians, the second half is all application. It's very practical. And everything hangs off of it like a mobile over a baby's crib. In Ephesians 5, it is be filled with the Spirit of God. And when you are filled, all of these other things are the practical examples or illustrations or demonstrations of the fact that you are filled. Same thing in Colossians. Be filled, Colossians 1.9, Colossians 2.10. Be filled with the Spirit, and then every other imperative hangs off of that. Submitting. Now, we've got to talk about this idea of submitting, this thing called the household code. Paul's not writing in a vacuum. He's sitting in Rome, writing to a place called Colossae that he's never been to, some people he does never met. But he's gotten a report of what's going on. And there are these false teachers that are beginning to infiltrate and influence negatively. And so Paul says, let me give you the correct household code. This is not a new thing. Uh, the ancient Greeks, Aristotle and Xenophon and Roman writers like Seneca, they all produced household codes for how to organize your home, which was the center of society and culture. Now, in recent decades, those household codes have come under massive amounts of fire socially because a lot of people will write dogmatically that those household codes in the secular sense and biblically we're about nothing more than preserving power and solidifying the patriarchy, keeping women down. And I get it. I totally get it. That has happened. These household codes in Philippians, and in, I'm sorry, in Ephesians and Colossians have been abused. They have been misapplied, misused. I get it. It has happened. And I am sorry. However, I can say with one. 100% certainty 
That was never the intent of the Spirit of our God, nor was it the intent of the Apostle Paul or later even Peter. Yes, there is freedom, but we do not obliterate all sorts of guidelines and scriptures anymore than you go out on Interstate 20 and you drive west in the eastbound lanes because you're free. Well, not for long. You will be a stain before too much longer. There are some guidelines that are in place to keep us according to the order of things. That's what these household codes are. They're guidelines. It's marvelously vague. A lot of the secular household codes, again, Aristotle, Xenophon, and Seneca, were very specific and rather gross and unpleasant in a lot of the ways they determined that slaves and children and wives ought to behave. No, the New Testament writers are saying, listen, we're under attack. A lot of the secular opponents were saying, you're trying to end the Roman Empire. And they said, we're not. We're trying to bless it. We're trying to show what a life hidden with God in Christ, how it looks, how it flourishes. And so let's give some very vague guidelines. And they give these household codes. They say, wives, verse 18. Very, very brief little introductions here. Paul says, wives, submit. Now, I know that you would rather eat a toilet-soaked light bulb than submit because you're American. I get it. Me too. We don't like that word. But it's a military term. It's a noble term. It's a term of dignity and purpose and mission. Hupotasso, to line up under. There's a great grand mission. I'm going to stand my place on the line or in the ranks, and I'm going to accomplish my purpose. There is no determination here whatsoever of less than value. There's nothing in here that says, wives, because you are less than, functionally, ontologically, meaning in actual essence, nature, and being. It's not that, but you do have a purpose and a function. You are to submit to life. But here's the interesting, the verb is in the passive tense. Be submitted. So if I may be so bold, I'm just giving you the grammar and the syntax of the inspired word of God. Be submitted. That is God's plan for your life. That's what God is doing. Not to cow you, not to bend or break you. Please, that is never, ever. It is Adam saying to Eve, you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It is very early Jerry Maguire, you complete me, is what he says to Eve. What's more valuable, a golf club or a steak knife? I don't know, what are you trying to accomplish? If you're trying to cut a steak, you want a steak knife. If you're trying to hit a shot on a golf course, you want a golf club. They have different purposes, but they're equally valued for their purpose. And so people who are filled with the Spirit, catch this, this is what Paul says in Ephesians, and he says it in Colossians. People who are filled with the Spirit actively submit to one another. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read the news on the web or I watch things on screens and I go, the, the whole situation with 8 billion people is that there don't seem to be a whole lot of people who are willingly submitting to others and not getting their way. You know what? That's what love is. My actively, intentionally investigating, seeking out opportunities to not get my way so that you do. How's business? Looking for chances for me to not get my way so that you can. <sighs> Submit. It's a dirty word. Until you look at the cross, it's even dirtier. The cosmocrator, 
<laughs> the one who spoke words and all that exists, exists, becomes sin and shame and ick and death, and he submits for those who do not deserve it. Now, we have the opportunity and the privilege as the people of God, because remember, this is an epistle where it's telling the church, church, don't you understand? You are from the future. You've been, you've been brought back from the future because of what Christ did in the past. This is how Jesus would live his life through you if he was living his life through you because he is. He would submit. He'd be joyfully willing to not get his way. So, wives, this is not a political stance of you have to be cowed or bent. No, 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 no. This is an ennobling, a dignifying. This is what God is doing in and through you. Why? Because you are a helpmate. You are a helper. You are celebrated like no other person in Proverbs 31. Men don't get celebrated like this. Men get called things like, you know, your throat's an open grave. And you, no, no, this is an ennobling thing. There's two people who are called helpmate in Scripture, the Holy Spirit and women. And so this is our purpose and our function and for women. It says, wives, be submitted. Receive that submitting to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And that's a crucial little addition there. Not in some dominating patriarchal abuse. No, 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 as is fitting in the Lord. So husbands, before we even get to your verse, which is coming, is your wife being viewed as a woman who is in Christ? who is so completely cherished, treasured, and adored by your Jesus that to speak harshly or physically to her would quite literally be like slapping Jesus. Would you? Would, so you submit because your husband treasures you and finds you precious just like Jesus does. So wives, be in the process of submitting because you're filled with the Spirit and submission looks like people submitting to one another so that they don't get their own way as is fitting in the Lord because we are hidden in Christ. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's terrible. Why does he got to tell them to love their wives? Because they don't, because they weren't. In Roman times, in Roman culture, wives were essentially for reproduction, full stop. Everything else was to be found outside the home. Paul says, no, we're going to show a better way. No, love them. Have a well-reasoned concern for them. Demonstrate that you're always thinking of their good higher than your own. You want their good above your own. You're willing to not get your way for her sake. Why does Paul have to tell them that? Because they weren't doing that. Because our flesh rages against that. Paul says, I want you to be the demonstration of the coming kingdom now because of what Jesus did in the past. This is why we say it all the time in counseling situations and premarital certainly. Ladies need to be loved, cherished, treasured, prized, adored, Men need to be supported and respected. This is God's function. This is God's purpose. He has guidelines for how life is supposed to actually work. Husbands, love your wives and do not, <laughs> the ESV says, be harsh with them. Nope, close. Nice try. No. Do not be, in the passive sense, do not be embittered against them. Now that's fascinating. 
the Apostle Paul, the Bible, the Holy Spirit is telling us that our natural tendency, our proclivity, because of the gravity of our depravity, is that we as males, as husbands, are embittered against our wives. What does that mean? When you are bitter, it means you are frustrated that you don't get what you think you deserve. Let me say that again. You are embittered against your wife because somewhere in your psyche, in your soul, you don't think you're getting what you deserve. Where did that nonsense idea come from? It's called flickering pixels. Every screen's telling you as a male that you deserve something better. Let me just say, from my perspective, I can see you. You don't. Neither do I. You, whatever you have, you are the recipient of a grace you can't even begin to imagine. Do not be embittered. In other words, that's coming for you. That's coming at you. 24-7, the world, the flesh, the devil are aimed at you to embitter you. Don't do it. You're from the future. You are in Christ. Husbands, love, agapet your wives. Her good above your own. Serve where you are. Yeah, but where's the podcast that's going to tell me how to be Captain Awesome? doesn't exist. What about the pamphlet and the brochure? What about the walk to Emmaus? Cool. Unless it doesn't change how you treat your wife, then save your money and your time. Serve where you are. Paint up, paint down. Wax on, wax off. Love her. Wives, support him. I'm only two verses in. Verse 20. Now we finally get to go vertical and dump everything on the kids. All right, I hope all you kids are listening. This is the greatest children's ministry verse in all time. Well, there's more going on here. Children, obey your parents in everything. Oh, that's the killer. Children, obey your parents in what's cool. Children, obey your parents in what you'll put on TikTok. Nope. In everything. But what if my parents are Eric and Susan Barton? Yeah, I know. That's a tough gig. I get it. I get it. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. You ever think about that? You're a child, you're a kid, you're, you're, you're in elementary school, you're an adolescent, whatever. I'm a parent, but we've told you about Jesus your whole little life. Mm. We've told you about Jesus your whole little life. What amazes and thrills the Lord Jesus is when a little life goes, you know what, mommy? Jesus loves me. I'm going to do what you said. Oh, wax on, wax off. And the world gets changed. It's amazing. Not legalistically, like, okay, I've got to submit to my parents because Jesus loves me. Nobody, nobody sees that as compelling. No. It pleases the Lord. If you really knew who Jesus was, if you actually got a glimmer and a glimpse of his glory and his grandeur and his grace, and you thought you could actually please him by simply washing that dish, oh my gosh. You don't have to go to India. You don't have to go to China. You don't got to go dig a ditch or even help our elders across the street. You want to please the Lord Jesus who loves you? the greatest big brother in the history of relationships? Obey your parents. Again, not begrudgingly. Out of, this, is, this is how God sets up the order of the cosmos, of the universe. And it was a serious deal. Back in Deuteronomy, it was a capital offense for 
rebelling against your parents. Now, we don't have any record that the Jews actually ever killed one of their kids for not obeying, but God puts it in place to say, this is serious. In the book of Romans, Paul starts going down this really gross laundry list of sin and decline and depravity, and it's like all these gross things of violence and anger and aggression and sexual deviance and all this stuff, and finally, he gets to the bottom, and he goes, and there are even some who don't obey their parents. Because if that breaks down, all of society, all of culture breaks down. And Paul's saying, we're not trying to obliterate the Greek and Roman world. We're trying to build it and bless it and bolster it from within because of the finished work of Jesus. How is Jesus seen in the world? His people. So children, obey your parents. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, parents, but generally speaking, fathers, do not provoke your children. Perhaps some of your translations will say exasperate. I like that term better. This sort of colloquially might be like, stop moving the goalposts on your kids. <laughs> I want you to do this until I feel differently. Then I want you to do this. And the kids are like, I can't ever win, can I? <laughs> kids, some of you feel like you can't win with your parents. They're trying, all right, kids? They're trying. We're idiots. We don't know what we're doing either. Don't move the goalposts. You have the opportunity as the representation of God the Father to hold the crown of righteousness over their heads and beckon them to, to rise up, to grow into where that crown. This is who God made you to be. This. You're not there yet. But this is who I, I see you in 10 years. This crown's gonna fit and then we're gonna get a bigger crown and I'm gonna hold it over your head until I'm gone. I will continue to hold that crown over your head not moving the goalposts. This is what righteousness in the world looks like. Don't exasperate your kids. Tell them this and then move the goalposts. It discourages them. You can see their little shoulders go, Bruh. oh, those are great moments in fatherhood. Been there. Hey, do this. No, 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 I want you to do this. And you can hear them almost, I can't wait to get another daddy. I know. We're trying. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Oh, you don't want to be the source of your kids' discouragement any more than you already are. Verse 22. Now we're finally going to talk about the workplace. No, not exactly. This was just how things got done. More than, more than a third of the population of the Greco-Roman world was in slavery of some form. So Paul does not call for the abolition of slavery. That would have ended the Western world in a full swoop. Instead, he's talking about integrity. He's talking about integrity. Bond servants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers. Oh, I say this every now and then at our staff meetings, either here or for all Bethel. I am a recovering people pleaser. And uh, my boss says, oh, well, that's funny. You think you're in recovery. And I go, thanks. That, that, that hurts. Not as people pleasers. We don't do that. We do it as Jesus pleasers. Now, he's not talking about how to be a good boss or how to be a good employee, although there are some principles here. It's about integrity. Do what you do as an instrument of righteousness. How is God setting the world to rights in your little sphere of influence through you doing the right thing even when nobody's watching, even when nobody can applaud you? Listen, you didn't get to choose your family. They certainly didn't choose you. You probably don't really even choose your friend group and your neighbor group and your, your community. Not that much. That's part of God's provision. And he has placed you as the setting to rights 
person for that sphere of influence. So operate with integrity. Why? Out of legalism and moralism? No. Because Jesus has brought you from the future and placed you in the present because of what he did in the past to be that person that sets the world to rights. People pleasers, not, not as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Oh, is that one of my favorite words? Sincerity. Can I talk about sincerity for just a second? Bear with me. Sincerity. In the Greek, it's heliocrine. In Latin, sincere. The Greeks would make pottery, all right? And if you were an honest, integrous business person, you'd make a really good vase or a amphara where you would pour your wine or something and you would make it really, really good and you would wait the necessary amount of time and you would have it in the sun and you would let it fire, then you would glaze it and then a customer would come by to buy your vase and they would hold it up to the sun and they could tell if you fired it too quickly and cheaply because it would be full of cracks, but then you just painted over and glazed over it. But you would hold it up, and you'd say, ah, this vase is heliocrine, sun-tested. I see no cracks. But if you were a not-integrous business person, you would fill these cracks with wax, and it would be sun-tested, and you'd say, ah, buddy, you got wax in your cracks. I know a lot of Christians with wax in their cracks. That's not who we're supposed to be. We are to be sincere sun-tested. You hold us up to the sun, the earth sun, and the son of God. Do we see shortcuts? Do we see sort of uh, cutting of corners? Or are we doing the right thing because we have the right king, you see? Do this with sincerity, with integrity, with nobility. That's who we are to be. No, uh, verse 23. Well, we're to do that with Fearing the Lord, having an awestruck wonder and reverence. Seeing the Lord properly there at the end of verse 22. Seeing him for who he is. Not some idea of him, but seeing him. Having an awestruck reverence and wonder for the Lord. Then verse 23. Whatever you do, that leaves nothing out incidentally. Whatever you do, work heartily. Means, think about it. You've had this expression, you've been doing something with your kids, and they just like drill a hole in the dishwasher, and you're like, what were you thinking? They weren't at all. At all. But we are to think about it intentionally, volitionally, discernedly. Think about it. Work. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. Wow, this is one of those central verses. I got an email from Glenn this week, and it's his email signature, Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, it's for Jesus. Yeah, but I'm just taking out the trash for Jesus. Yeah, I'm just making the bed for Jesus. Because look at him. Look at him. Yeah, look at him. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Because here's the deal. No humans are ever going to actually love and acknowledge and accept and appreciate you, but Jesus does fully and totally. And part of being a Christian is learning to live like you're actually loved. Verse 24, knowing, so there's a mindset here, there's an attitude, there's a perspective, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Oh, baby, this is going to be good. Oh, baby, this is going to be good. What is it? I don't know exactly. But I trust that Jesus is even better than I think he is. Let me say that again. I trust that Jesus is even better than I think he is, and I think he's awesome. And I think Ephesians 2.10 says that we were saved to do the good work that he prepared in advance, and then he rewards us for it. Check, please. That's a deal. Work, whatever you do, knowing that Jesus is going to reward. 
us for the stuff that he's doing in and through us in his power by his spirit under his sovereignty. Now, a people scattered all over the planet amongst other 8 billion people who are living, thinking, believing, and feeling like that, that'll change the world all over again. That's what we're called to. Knowing, he says, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Did you know that? No matter what you're doing, you're in the medical field, you're in a legal profession, you're in the ditch digging profession, you are in the whatever profession, not a profession, you are serving Jesus. He has placed you in his sovereignty precisely when and where he has placed you. You're serving him. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. Now, does this mean you're supposed to fear seeing Jesus? He's going to come back and zap you and get you? No, no, no. You have been judged at the cross. Paul is addressing these false teachers that are saying, you have to do all this stuff so that you can go up the rungs of the ladder. Nope. Paul's going, not, mm, the Bible's going, nope. Mm, the Spirit's going, nope. That's not it. But if you are not mindful, if you are not heartful, there's consequences. You know this. Not judgment, not condemnation, but there are consequences. Verse 25, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. The rain falls on the righteous and the wicked. If you commit a crime, it doesn't matter who you are. There is consequence for that. Verse 1 of chapter 4, masters, treat your bondservants. Oh, this is a great conclusion. It really should be a chapter. Move back one verse, but that's okay. Masters, treat your bondservants justly. You have been given some authority. You have been given some responsibility. You have been given some place. What are you doing with that? Trying to establish your awesomeness? Mm, you are in, installed by Jesus to set the world to rights in your little pocket of the population, your little sphere of influence. So treat them justly. Now, see, again, that's a technical term. It's not just with good morals. It's being willing to disadvantage yourself for the sake of another. That's righteousness, the kaiosune in the Bible. It's being willing to disadvantage yourself for the sake of the other. Masters? Be willing to disadvantage yourself for your bondservants? Yeah. Let's see. Uh, oh, that's right, the cross. What's Jesus like? If you have some kind of authority, but you are an abuser, you are a dominator, you can give the gospel verbally all you want, it'll never be heard. But if you show, this is me, willing to disadvantage myself for your advantage, my life for y'all, my life for all of you, then the gospel is painted on a beautiful canvas. Do you see? Paul knows what he's talking about because this is inspired by the Spirit of God. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. See, there's a mindset here. There's an attitude set here. There's a heart set, soul set. I'm serving the Lord Jesus. Everything I do has purpose and has potential. So what is Paul's point here as he sits in jail writing to these people in Colossae 2,000 years ago and by extension us in the 21st century? Serve where you are. Let me give you three very quick implications to just apply this. Number one, it goes like this. There are no shortcuts. Again, I've already mentioned this. I'm just gonna sort of summarize and wrap these up. There are no shortcuts. We would all love them. Your home, your surrounding community is your ministry. 
It's your mission field. It's the environment in which you have the greatest capacity to reflect, to resemble Christ. You didn't choose where or when or with whom you are. God, in his sovereignty, divinely and providentially placed you in your family and your friend group at precisely this time and place. And he does nothing by chance. The members of your family may be, just, just, just maybe, not making eye contact with anyone, the members of your family may be the ones that irritate you the most. Oh, just, I've heard stories. This is where Jesus is talking about in Matthew 25, that you would call to the least of these, the ones that irritate you the most, you would go the lowest. Serve where you are. There's no shortcuts. See, this is the genius of Mr. Miyagi, and by that I mean the Apostle Paul, the uh, Mr. Miyagi of Scripture. The mundane, everyday tasks of life done faithfully and with a spirit of submission, meaning bowing to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is to prepare us to act and react instinctively when we find ourselves in those trying circumstances. Because here's the deal. You're either in them, or you've just came out of them, or you're about to go into them. Paint up, paint down. Wax on, wax off. Serve one, encourage one. Repetition, it builds muscle memory. It builds spirit memory. We can't expect to be seasoned combatants or warriors for the kingdom of Christ if we can't serve faithfully where we live, where we work, where we actually exist, and our little outposts of the kingdom. When we prove and demonstrate our faithfulness because of Jesus in those quote-unquote small things, he will use us in those large things. And by the way, there are no small things. Do you know that? Sometimes it doesn't seem very big because it's hidden and it's obscure. It's for the glory of Jesus and he sees and he cares and he knows. Resist any suggestion that this book or that podcast or whatever will quickly or suddenly turn you into a spiritual giant. Nope, it doesn't exist. Serve where you are. Ah, but that's going to be hard. It's gonna, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So that brings me to point number two. Jesus is worth it. Now, if you don't know that, I invite you to believe. Like, that's it. That's the thing. If he's not really and truly worth it to you, all this other stuff is just going to wear you out and exasperate you. You're, you're out of gas. You can't do it. If we still had a Luby's, you'd be done before you even got there. But if you look at Jesus and you see that he's worth it, man, this is as real and practical and everyday life as it gets. Most of us would affirm that, yes, Jesus is worth me going across the world on a mission trip or even maybe worth my finances or maybe even me, you know, giving some special project at a medical clinic or something like that. But, but going lower than my spouse? Ah, yeah, no, no, Jesus is worth it. Since we are a people from the future, because of what Jesus did in the past, we are living out his kingdom ethic right down in the grit of everyday life and in our relationships. And through our, and our flesh whines against service and screams against hidden service. Look at Jesus, who didn't utter a mumbling word as we sing on Good Friday. 
And he went low, the lowest. Look who he is. Look what he did. Take another hard look at what you and I actually deserve because of our sin and our depravity. And that he loves us and he accepts us so much anyway. He's even worth me not being right or getting my way with my wife, who incidentally is out of town and doesn't have to hear that. Woo-hoo! Jesus is worth her getting her way. And by the way, so is she. But I'll never fully believe that and scale that unless I actually believe that Jesus is worth it. Third point. This life matters. Well, duh. This life matters. Listen, I love the old spiritual as much as the next guy. I'll fly away. Oh, glory. In other words, get me out of here. This life is brutal. I love that song. It's great. You should have it at your service one day. Or you can put it in mine, whatever. But if that is all we ever think about this life, we're missing the point massively. What we do here and now, especially in the hidden and the obscure places of our lives, matters massively in the kingdom of God. There's nothing unnoticed or unseen or unappreciated. Did you know that? Everything. In other words, we are to actively and intentionally live in expectation of a heavenly reward. That's okay. That is right. That is good. That is correct. Paul says so. Yes, our God and Father really is aware, lovingly, caringly, wantingly for us to raise up into the crown that he and his son Jesus hold over our heads, that we would rise up into the creation that he has created us to be. We're not merely to try to slog out an existence before we finally die one day and go to heaven. Nobody's captivated by that message. I see it every time I go up and down I-20. Heaven or hell, you choose. I'm like, ah, yeah, it's a tough one. Because whoever made that billboard, I'm not sure I want to party with you. It's not good. No, no, uh-uh. That's not captivating. It's not compelling. But people who live lives serving one another, where they are, in the here and the now, in the hidden and the obscure, I think the rest of the world goes, wait, you what now? Wow, why would you do that? And you go, Jesus, Jesus, Christ has bought us and redeemed us and given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us his people, some of whom are in very tight quarters with us. And it is in those little spaces where we can most powerfully bring the power of the gospel to bear. Serve where you are. Because Jesus gives his peace to us. Every conversation I have, it seems, everyone's freaking out about what's going on in our world. Peace. Peace. Can you imagine the disciples? Jesus is dead, hanged on a cross, naked, beaten, flogged, spat upon, ridiculed, suffocates and gives up his spirit and he's dead and the disciples are like, well, this is pretty bad. This is pretty awful. And then he comes back. And they're like, well, this is it. This has got to be it now, right? I mean, this is as bad as it gets, but you're back. And so let's go. And Jesus goes, my peace. It's going to get worse. But you're going to serve where you are. And it matters. And I'm for you, and I am with you, and you will be rewarded. Peace I give to you. Surely things will get worse. 
peace, the gospel. May the peace of Christ dwell in you richly as it matures rather practically. Paint up, paint down. Wax on, wax off. Serve where you are. Encourage one another. Wives, be the helpmate. Husbands, cherish, treasure, prize your spouse like Jesus does. Children, it's an opportunity to love Jesus in the world, in the community, to demonstrate integrity as though Jesus was living his life through you because he is. Serve where you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, reading us more than we read your word. We pray, God, that if there anyone here this morning does not know you more precisely, doesn't understand or believe the worth of your son Jesus, he's a good guy, smart teacher, good role model, and that's all. Would you seize them by your spirit, irresistibly move them from death to life, from darkness to light, and would they catch a glimpse of the glory of your son Jesus and what he has done and who you have now redemptively recreated them to be? Would you give them courage to speak with someone about this, that they would perhaps galvanize their faith journey and begin to serve where they are in spirit and in truth? And for the rest of us, Father, who have gotten stuck in a monotony and a pattern, a rut of simply existing until we're dead. <laughs> Would you give us opportunities by end of day to day, by end of week this week, to go low, to serve where we are, to feel the warmth of your gaze that you are pleased with us because the people who know that their God is pleased with them are a kingly people indeed. So Father, thanks for loving us. Help us to increase in our capacity to understand that, to live like it's true. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.